Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. We got a shot at bat. And then it was what we did with that shot at bat that allowed us to grow the revenue to 2 million in a very short period of time. And we worked our tail off. I think when you're in the beginning of it, there's almost no amount of advice I can give you because the pain is just so in your face. (laughs) When you're an entrepreneur, you just don't let small things stop you. You figure it out. If you fail, um, that sucks, but it's just that failure would just be the next stepping stone to you actually getting whatever it is you want right. What was the question? is the Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles, and today I am here with Mei Ling Lai. She is an innovation specialist, innovator, consultant, and business founder. She worked in equity research sales and put investors together and prepared companies for 200 IPOs. At age 24, she built a nutraceuticals business that in two years generated annual revenues of over $2 million. She then sold that and was hired by an $8 billion hedge fund where she managed over a billion dollars in equity short strategies. And then she co-founded an asset management and analytics consulting business acting as head of innovation in which her work with C-level executives in the asset management space impacted over $1.2 trillion worth of assets. She is also proficient in five languages. She's been to 50 countries and she's now semi-retired working with learning companies as a board member and innovation specialist and is soon to be the author of the book, The Low-Hanging Fruit of Innovation, coming this fall. May, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Really excited to be here. Awesome to have you here. We are sitting here drinking some wine and about to have an amazing conversation. So you and I were just in Malta, which together, which was your country number 50. I was country number 50. I was very excited. Amazing. So let's talk about your lifestyle first. I want to just step back a little bit because one of the things that impresses me very much about you is that you always seem to dress very well when you travel and you use carry-on luggage only. So can you talk a little bit about how you do that and what techniques over the years you have developed for traveling without checking luggage? But you know, you have to you have to get a lot of specialty gear for this. I've been traveling for work since I was basically since I graduated. 
Um, and I traveled a bit before that. So I always um, knew that um, I was going to have to figure this out. It was interesting. I'm going to change the answer to instead of just answering your question like a normal human being, <laughs> I'm going to actually explain to you why it's so important to me because I think sometimes that's kind of the thing. Agreed. When I was younger, my parents and I would go on these trips to China and, you know, Back then, they didn't really conceptualize exactly. They hadn't had enough innovation is what I'm saying in the land of getting the luggage off the plane and onto that little carousel. So mostly you were standing there for maybe half hour to an hour waiting for that carousel to start even moving. And then it's a big, gigantic 747. So you might be there for two hours just waiting for your luggage. Right. That was my childhood. Right. Two hours that I could have been spending, that could have been spent on a playground, you know, doing more math homework because I am an Asian girl, stuff like that. Instead, I just had to watch luggage go around and around and around. And, you know, in my house, we have this thing called the garage of broken luggage took us, we had like maybe 20 broken luggages back there. So when I think check luggage, I think I'm paying for luggage to be broken by some guy who really, really is underpaid and not so excited about making sure that my stuff makes it there safely. Right. And I think when you have that in your background and that in your mind, there is no option to check luggage. Checking luggage is like giving away your things to other people almost immediately. It's no good. So, right. I so, agree. And yeah. I, think, I think having a, the motivation, both the pros and the pain points, right? Like yeah. what are the incentives for doing it? Oh, and yeah. what are the pain points for not doing it? And if you travel the world a lot, those will both eventually add up and become more apparent and you'll be really inspired to do it, which is why I do it. And so I loved that you and I had that in common. But but I think also, you know, one of the things when I talk to people about um, carry-on luggage only for extended world travel, because I can travel the world for a year with carry-on luggage, and I tell people that. And one of the objections that I get um, from some women is, oh, you're a guy, you know, what specific techniques can I use as a woman? And so I would love for you to share some of the specifics that you have found and how you do that because you always are able to dress very nicely. Yeah, I try. (laughs) No, I mean, okay, so, so there's a few things and, you know, I think that as a guy, there are less things that you need, but you typically guys are physically larger than women. So what you... Um, what you don't have to do because you're because of gender differences and what you kind of usually would carry kind of is made up for by the fact that all of your clothes are larger. So there's that. Um, there's a lot of things. I think when I first started uh, traveling more more intensely and for longer periods, I noticed that there was a huge portion of my luggage that I wasn't using. Um, I also over the years you kind of figure out what things are bulky and what things are not. Um, And then you figure out as well how you manage climate differences because climate difference is a big deal. So I know for you, you had said, you know, where you're going matters a lot. And then how you, um, you know, strategize your packing is going to be a function of that. That's totally true. For women, you know, there's a couple of tricks that we have that men don't have. Like, (laughs) I mean, I won't. I want to be so gender specific. Maybe you do this as a guy. I'm not judging at all. But, um, you know, one of the biggest things that a woman can do is just carry pantyhose. Pantyhose underneath anything will make that item cold weather appropriate. Uh, So if you have jeans, you do pantyhose underneath the jeans, you're automatically um, good sub zero degrees. 
no matter, I mean, unless you have the world's thinnest jeans, but you kind of have to look at that in advance. Um, leggings, you know, leggings actually, guys don't really wear leggings for the most part, unless they're more like running gear, but leggings actually are an appropriate, uh, you know, bottom for a lot of outfits. So if you have like tunics and leggings, you don't nearly need the same amount of space as if you're doing jeans or dress pants or something like that. Uh, I think the other biggest hack is just to, uh, throw things that you know are no longer viable. You know, I know in American culture, Chinese culture, consumerism is a big thing. There's very few women that travel as extensively as you and I do that don't have stuff in their closet that probably should take a one-way trip. You know, so so when you do that, then you take care of the um, consumerism that might happen while you're in a new location. I think that's a big thing like so for example on this trip this cruise was a little bit tough because there were three theme nights and I had to pack for the three theme nights they were um, a formal night the captain's dinner which is one uh, tropical night which I think I, I pulled off very well you rocked it yeah I totally rocked you it. Yeah. it so I had a little flower in my hair and everything um, and then we had the white party I think that was it. Those three, right? There weren't any others. Yeah. Yeah. So those items were probably not going to be one-way tripping it. The white party was a little bit easier because the white shirt that you wear can probably go with other outfits. Um, And the tropical party was a little bit more like you could have, as a guy, you definitely could have worn that shirt more than once. As a woman, it depends on what you chose to express your tropicalness. And it's actually pretty cold in the Mediterranean at this time of year. So I think it's a little bit limiting, but you know. Um, and then the formal, that's a luggage dump. And formals for women are usually really thick. But I went through all of my formals and found the one formal that was the thinnest and the least bulky and chose that one. So it worked out. Still in my luggage, I had I have probably one packing cubes worth of stuff that's not coming back. Okay. Yeah. So that gives me room for anything I purchase. Cool. So so with those packing hacks, you are consistent. So what does your l- travel lifestyle look like at this point? How much are you traveling? How much time are you in New York? Like, how are you structuring I'm your like, life? At, it's like two to four weeks off of New York and then one and a half to two weeks on New York. Okay. That's how it looks. Okay. Yeah. And then how do you sort of select the places where you go and identify sort of your lifestyle design, you know, structure? Like, how do you do that? What is your process? So, you know, when, when you're kind of semi-retired and your biggest responsibility is finishing this wonderful, amazing book that is so, like, it's the first time I'm writing it. So it's actually quite challenging for me. I know there's a lot of people that are full-time nomads that are amazing writers. I'm completely envious of them. But um, so, you know... When you, but in this particular lifestyle that I currently have, I have full flexibility over where I need to be and when I need to be there. So I've, with that, I essentially uh, just pick the cheapest airfare, you know? Awesome. And yeah, there's no, you know, instead of trying to figure out where I must be, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's just not how I uh, sorted out. That, and I'm also trying to get lifetime qualifying miles because... You know, you never know when you have such a big chunk of time versus when you don't have chunks of time. So to get that LQM is a big deal. <laughs> and what websites do you use to find the cheapest flights and look for those flights? Probably I use Google Flights mostly because I like because I'm trying to also do LQM. I can sort by Star Alliance, which yeah. I like. Yeah. Um, and you can even sort by United. And I actually sadly think that the sort feature in Google Flights is still actually better than United. 
but I love you Star Alliance, so please don't do anything mean to my seats when I'm like traveling with you. Um, no. Uh, so, so I, um, so I use Google flights as a preliminary place to look. And then, you know, there are a couple of hacks. I have not used all of them, but I did realize that Air Asia sometimes shows up strangely on, um, and then there's a couple like Asian airlines that are very discounted that show up strangely. Um, if you fly to the hubs and then fly from the hubs to other places. So what do I mean by hub? Hub is any place for which there is a high density of um, flights that come in and out of it. So like New York's a hub. You don't need to do New York in the extreme because you will necessarily probably be flying through New York again. Singapore is a hub. Kuala Lumpur is a hub. Um, And, you know, the hubs differ depending on which uh, airline group that you've chosen. So I'm just naming the Star Alliance ones. The United ones are totally different, probably Chicago. But who wants to fly in and out of Chicago? What a disaster. I don't know what's going on with O'Hare, but they still haven't sorted that out for a long time. They need an innovation specialist, I think is what that is all about. Um, so let's, like, let's actually let's actually use that to transition into talking about innovation. You yeah. are an innovation specialist that's been sort of the centerpiece of your entire career trajectory, even in all of the different roles that you play. That's sort of been a common theme. Actually, uh, yeah, you're, it's true. Yeah, you're writing, you're writing a book on it now, obviously. So let's start with the very basics in terms of a definition. What do you mean by innovation? And then maybe just give us a general context and explanation of how we should think about innovation. When I talk about innovation, I'm really talking about problem solving. Uh, you know, and the little slide that I use is I think that people often think unless you're a big innovator doing big ideas, then that's what makes you innovative. And that's so off-putting. It's so insurmountable for most people. It's not, I think, a fair way to look at innovation. I think problem solving as a definition, particularly for the type of innovation that most people want from an entrepreneurial perspective or otherwise, is best described as problem solving. And there are small problems, shallow problems that require, um, that really are just solving your own personal concern. You know, they don't necessarily impact a lot of people, but you have a frustration or a problem and you see something interesting and then think, hey, I'm going to apply that to whatever it is I'm doing. So you're going to use whatever you heard in an innovative way to solve your problem. You know, big innovations, the ones that change the world and inspire a generation, those are actually not a single innovation. They're usually a series of innovations that are put together. Innovation really is start with the problem that you are concerned with, that you care about, that you actually as an entrepreneur feel motivated enough to do something about. Small, 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 small. Um, Fix it. And through somehow magically the course of fixing these small problems, you will somehow find yourself one day being thought of as rather innovative. And that's really it. So let's talk about the next piece of it, right? So finding a problem, finding an innovative solution, having an idea. Yeah. You and I have been talking about ideas a lot lately. And I think a lot of people have ideas. And and one of the things I think is important for entrepreneurs to understand is that the idea is one part of it, yeah. but it's maybe not even the most important part of it. For example, Uber, that idea was around before Uber did that, right? There was Magic Cab and there was other types of yeah. things where people had an idea for the concept. Uber, 
obviously was able to execute it at a completely different level than anyone prior to them, right? So for an entrepreneur, let's say they're able to brainstorm that first part, find a problem, find a solution, and have the idea. What's the next level in terms of transforming that idea into a business building process? It's really interesting because I think the companies I'm working with now um, are are uh, probably going through this and using this skill set that um, I've been fortunate enough to develop from a series of experiences and a series of interactions with really, really amazing people. You know, first, just to reiterate what you're saying, uh, you know, ideas, everybody has ideas. That's the easy part by a lot. I mean, I give away ideas all the time with the hopes that someone will do them because I definitely don't have the energy to do all my ideas. And I think some of them would be super cool to see, you know, some probably not appropriate for this show um, as far as like it would take us in some crazy direction that has nothing to do with entrepreneurship. Just, you know, everyone has um, local problems that they're trying to solve. Um, you know, execute small first, get your client brace. You know, people talk about that minimal minimum viable product. But they usually talk about it in a commercial sense. I think the other way to think about it is the MVP is a chance for you to understand how it might work. So if it took all the energy in the world to create that MVP, then your next step is figuring out how it, to, how it doesn't take all the energy in the world to do that process. Like what does it actually take and what actually makes sense? What would be the actual next step? So for example, of the two companies, one of the companies that I'm working with, um, it's a sole proprietor who works with outsourcers. She, when I first started discussing how would we scale ourselves, she could not imagine how she would pass off things that she was exceptionally good at. You got to do it. I mean, if you yourself cannot see it, go find someone who can see it clear as day. If somebody else has is an entrepreneur and has multiple staff, they will absolutely be able to answer that question for you in a heartbeat. And then this is the hardest part. You actually have to listen to what they say. It's so tough. I mean, it's going to hurt because these are your passion projects. I mean, everything that you did, you did blood, sweat, and tears. Like, get it. I get it. The person you typically are going to choose to ask this also has blood, sweat, and tears somewhere and has come around the corner of not needing to use their own blood, sweat, and tears to make everything happen. And that is the thing that you're trying to figure out. So don't fight it and then really listen to it. I think the other thing that kind of goes into being able to take this advice well, and this is hard too, um, is to just realize that what you will likely do with that advice and the reason you are ignoring it and doing the thing that you always do is because you have gotten so good at doing that thing that you're doing that you are too scared to actually do the thing that you're not good at, which is what that person just told you. So if it's like, I'm really excellent at mixing videos. And so therefore I obviously need to mix videos because I'm a YouTube, whatever, you know, I don't probably, that's probably said completely incorrectly because I know nothing about videos whatsoever, but let's say that's your thing. And you're like, no, I could never let anybody else do it. They'd obviously mess it up. Yeah. That's your problem right there. That's why you can't scale yourself. You're phenomenal at it. You know, if somebody did it, 95% of you probably still have a phenomenal product. One, and two, if you found that person, they're probably hanging out with you because they want to learn that last 5%. So you actually have the ability to bring them up, which is 
probably step two, which is learning how to manage others. Yeah, which I which I actually want to transition into now as well, because that is the next step, right? So it's building the system and the process, right? Figuring out what it is that you do or that you've done and then building it into a system and process that can then be executed by someone else and then being able to find the right person to do it, train the person how to do it, and then manage and oversee the person that is doing it, right? And so can you talk about that then, now that stage, because I know you have worked with very high-level um, executives, C-level executives, and as well as you've been in the small business space, but you've also worked with extremely high-level uh, people uh, in the finance world and so forth, and you've been around in environments uh, with a lot of executive leadership, and you've probably seen good executive leadership and not so good and combinations of both and all of that. So can you talk a little bit about what are great executive leadership qualities and what types of things, if someone feels that they, you know, are the, you know, as a founder or whatever, is the, they are the right person to be the CEO and they are going to build that and they are going to oversee it and manage and run it and all that. What are executive leadership qualities? Oh my gosh, there's so many. I think sometimes we minimize this and think that there's just one thing called leadership. And in fact, there is a huge umbrella of things. And in fact, no person is strongest at all of them. And, you know, I think probably if I had to say there's one major skill for a leader is you really have to have self-awareness because you will not succeed if you do not know what your strength is and what your weaknesses are. Your strengths you're going to have to understand are going to be the place that you're going to go to when, you know, there's, you know, most people talk about strengths as these wonderful things that you use to build a company. Oh, I'm so strong. It's so awesome. However, your strengths also happen to be the place you hide out when you uh, are actually going to need to do something that is in your weakness. So you need to be aware of your strengths and you need to be aware that you're probably going to hide there when someone tells you to do something that is a little bit different but is important to taking your company to the next level. That's one foremost self-awareness. And do you think when someone is thinking about starting a business or they're, they've already started a business or they've left their job maybe and they're, they're sort of at the self-employed stage where they haven't started scaling it yet. Talk about maybe at that point, it, should the person be self-aware that maybe they're not the right person to be the CEO as the business grows and maybe they should play another role and partner with someone that should be that CEO or hire someone that should be that CEO and so forth. Like what type, what does that self auditing process look like? And should people be doing it at that early of a phase? Mm, that one's always really tough. I mean, it's your company. If you're an entrepreneur, it's your company. So I never, 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 um, would at this point in my career, probably in earlier points of my career, I would tell people that were at that C level what they should do. Um, but it probably, at some point, I had this aha moment. You don't tell a CEO what to do ever, and probably his immediate staff, unless you've been asked by the CEO or the chairman. It depends how the leadership structure is, the chairman of the board. Um, but a lot of companies are structured where the, the president, CEO, and chairman are the same person. But I never try to tell people what they must do with their company. You know, companies are like children. They're your baby. So, you know, you don't have a right as an outsider and even as an employee to a huge extent, you don't have a right to tell someone what they have to do with their child, so to speak. That's really, at least from an American culture, I'm sure there's international speakers here. Those are huge faux pas and for good reason. I think when you're thinking about 
executive leader, building executive team, building the staff around you, what you want to do is really be aware of what skills you're missing and what skills you have. Um, you know, titles are kind of meaningless in some ways, uh, especially if, you know, especially as the company gets larger, titles are, are meaningful only if you are have a really specific structure that you're trying to build. Um, the thing that you need someone to do, that's the important part. So if you're the CEO of a company and you're, you know, this is, you know, Steve Jobs used to say that there were three things that a CEO was supposed to do. The first was set the vision. The second was hire great people and make sure that they stay, you know. And the third, which is kind of part of the second, is set the culture. Those are the three things that later stage as a CEO you want to focus on. So as you're, as you're trying to do those three things, um, you know, those three things are really the responsibility of CEO. The day-to-day operations, you need a strong operator for sure. That's actually not the job of a CEO. However, if you don't have one, then it becomes your job. Every executive, every staff member you are missing, that is your job. And actually as well, because you hired that person, because you selected them to do a series of roles, including anyone that they also hired, because if you hired someone that knowing that they were going to hire people, but you failed to vet their ability to hire people, you are at fault. That is what it means to be a CEO. You take on the blame of every single person around you. And if you're an executive that is like also very high level, you must also take on the blame of every single person that is around you because, and this sounds really, really crazy, you are the adult. There is no one else that is designed to be the adult. And in many ways, what I mean by that is you as the owner are the one that's supposed to have the fully developed skills for the trajectory of the firm that you have set out, no matter what stage it's at, whether it's early stage, mid stage, or late stage in its growth or in its uh, maturity, right? You don't get to blame anyone else, you know? Of course, junior, the more junior you are, the more you're able to finger point, tell other people that they, you know, whatever it is, escalate upwards. But there's no place for you to go, my friend. There's no escalating upwards from you. And the more senior your staff, the more they should absolutely understand that. You know, they have to, you know, cultures that don't do this really suffer. They really suffer. You know, your executives, you have to hold the line, but so too do your right hand, your left hand and everything else. All right. Let me build on what you were just talking about and ask about sort of the second point that you cited from Steve Jobs in terms of hiring the right people and making sure they stay. Can you talk a little bit about management strategies and building a company culture and getting those talented people to stay and obviously optimizing their productivity and building that workplace culture. How, what tips do you have for that? Okay. So I've never taken a proper class or certification on this. There are probably people that have a very structured way of talking about this, but here is my take on it. The most important thing that you can do to make a person stay is not screw up the hiring process to begin with right? You want to understand not just the skills that you need in order to have that person execute the role that you've asked, but you need to really understand personalities and people. If you're like, you know, you need someone to, you know, make sure the trains run every day and it's going to be identical every day. You can't listen to what someone tells you in an interview. You have to actually 
ask whatever question it is that you think will actually give you the answer to whether or not that person is going to be happy in that role. If you hire someone who's super ambitious, super motivated, but what that ambition and motivation actually translates to is a desire to do new and exciting things and leave behind all the things that they've done in the past. They have zero interest in managing that um, repetitive stuff, zero interest in like hiring someone to then do repetitive stuff, and then zero interest in making sure that they actually do execute that repetitive stuff. That's just a mismatch. You failed at the hiring stage. You failed. Not that person failed. Not the person you hired failed. You failed. And I think that's what makes hiring such an important part of any executive's job. And then if you manage to find anyone with any kind of talent on it, that's amazing. That's amazing because that's a really, really hard job to pass off. You should not assume that because you hired someone who's brilliant, incredibly successful, lots of great resume stuff on there, that they're going to bring in people to your organization that are going to really follow this kind of HR thought process, in my opinion. The thing is, if you hire the wrong person, it's not just your stuff doesn't get done, but each and every person also affects the culture of your firm. You have to be so careful. So hiring is not something you do to fill a set of tasks that have to happen. I mean, there are some businesses that are like that, but mostly hiring is what you do to make sure that the culture isn't messed up and that things long-term get done and that you actually have set yourself up for long-term growth. It's the most important thing. Tell me what you mean by company culture, because I feel this is a term that's sort of thrown around there, kind of like a buzzword. But is that something that a founder, a business owner, a CEO should be intentional about, should have a vision towards and should should be intentional about architecting a company culture? And if so, what does that mean exactly? Yes, in the sense that if if your company is based on a very specific purpose, there's something you want to get done, then there is an attitude that probably coordinates with that. You know, if what you want to get done is make sure that everybody, um, you know, cares. It, it, let's say that your 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 um, company is in the environmental space. You don't want to hire people that are not going to care about that. At the end of the day, which is a phrase I always hate using, but is true. Uh, you know, that kind of common purpose is going to help people work harder uh, and really feel passionate about the work they're doing and want to grow. You get to focus, you know, business is solving problems. That means that there is necessarily going to be some problems that you solve and some problems that take a while to solve. And so necessarily there will be frustration. When you have a strong company culture, then it gives people a natural endurance and a natural kind of uh, vision, um, some kind of blinders towards some of the frustrations that are necessarily going to happen because they all have this kind of common purpose. When you don't have that culture, particularly I think where people get the get really um, sidetracked or they really suffer is they hire a really talented person who's more financially focused but could care less about the mission. That's when I think you re- things can really get a little bit, uh, you know, sidetracked. You know, you know, you can end up with people caring more about compensation even if the company is not necessarily um, 
in a position where it should compensate more because that compensation then has to be applied away from growth into just generalized compensation. I'm not saying you shouldn't compensate your employees. You better compensate your employees because quite frankly, they'll leave. You know, motivation can only get you so far and purpose can only get you so far if you're actually treating your employees in an unfair manner or in a manner that doesn't grow their career or in a manner that's exploit. You know, it's the worst thing you could do. Uh, but if you have a common culture, a common purpose, a common kind of call it lighthouse, then you'd be amazed at how hard people will work Um, how excited they will be to come, how many new innovations they themselves will create that you didn't even have to think of. You know, purpose, culture, whatever you want to call it, all align to direct people to your thought process. You know, culture is really about the things you don't need to communicate because everybody understands. It's a shortcut. You know, when you're an executive, particularly when you're an entrepreneur, you have a vision, and you might articulate it as, I want to sell this type of widget. Usually, though, any entrepreneur that's been at it for a while doesn't mean, I want to sell that widget. Maybe they do. I don't know. But most people mean, I want to sell that widget in a particular way to a particular market at a particular time, and I would like it done in a particular fashion that will allow us to be super successful. There's actually all this other communication that is so obvious to you that you wouldn't say it. But to think that everybody else behind you also understands that is actually a little bit crazy, but we all do it. So there's nothing um, wrong with it. Culture is what allows you to skip some of that stuff. So if you don't focus on that a little bit, if you start to bring people that are on such an, it's such a different page, you know, it, it can really kill it, you know, and then some organizations really think that EQ is very important. I always think EQ is a very difficult thing to define, you know, but, um, how fast you want people to run, how fast you're willing to force people to run, what kind of behaviors are acceptable, what kind of behaviors are not acceptable. All of that is culture. You know, you can write as many handbooks as you want. You can hire as many HR people. You know, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't, you can hire as senior people as you think. If you don't have a culture that allows you to shortcut these communications, you will spend a lot of your time putting out interpersonal I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Fires that you never, ever could have even imagined would have happened. You have been in the financial space where you have been betting on companies doing well and you have been in situations where you have been betting enormous amounts of money on companies failing yeah i used to manage a short a series of short strategies um which is selling the company uh first with the with the belief that the price will go down and then buying it back to cover that that trade 
And so as you're assessing all of these different companies over your career and you're really looking into the businesses and you're betting enormous amounts of money that some are going to do well and that others are going to fail, what types of things are you looking at and are you identifying in what themes might there be in the companies that you're projecting will do well versus the companies that you're projecting will fail? And specifically, if you can extrapolate some of those themes in a broad sense that may even be applicable to small businesses, for example. That's interesting. Um, the biggest theme is financing, I think. Financing relative to business. You know, as you grow, financing, there are very few businesses that purely self-finance. And even if they purely self-finance, usually what they've done is figured out ways to um, obtain leverage in a much more affordable way. You always have to be in front of your business, especially when it's growing. And that is probably the major thing that cuts your legs out from underneath you. You know, if you don't have the right financing or if you've applied capital poorly, it's just bad. So maybe we can talk about that too for particularly businesses In the that, short are, term. that are attempting to scale, let's yeah. say, right? How should they think about scaling their business in terms of those different options, in terms of debt and borrowing, in terms of raising investment capital, in terms of trying to bootstrap, right? In yeah. terms of the different choices, how should they go about that thought process and decision-making as they're going to scale their business? And maybe even go back to when you started your business at age 24, uh, maybe you could even give some personal experience in terms of how you did that, how you built it to a $2 million revenue, annual revenue in a period of two years. Oh. How did you even do I'm that? I'm kind of like, I don't know how we did it how? sometimes, <laughs> but we did actually do it. I swear we did. Yeah. So maybe, <laughs> so maybe, so maybe talk a little bit about that, but then, but then the, you know, the, the thought process around that scaling and how, you know, business owners or new entrepreneurs should be thinking about debt or raising investment capital or bootstrapping or what is that thought process like? Well, I want to say, you know, you keep mentioning it that is my business that I do, you know, and it was my business. That said, I had the most phenomenal partners in all these situations. I didn't do these things by myself. I, I would, I don't understand how the entrepreneur that goes it alone really does it themselves. I mean, I think first and foremost, you have a team and in particular, in my cases, I actually had partners that were holding this up as well so that it, it wasn't lone rider out there. You know, so if you're by yourself doing these, maybe this feels a little different. Um, you know, so, you know, it, my partners were phenomenal human beings that had so much experience. And that's what I look for when I try to partner with people is what they bring that I just absolutely could never imagine having as a skill set or as a knowledge base or what have you. Um, same, but, with, same with me, by yeah, the way. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, when I was starting Maverick Investor Group and I was trying to learn all the things that were needed to build a successful business, I was like, I do not have most of these skills, but I know some other people that do. I know exactly which of the skills I have and that they, these people would agree with me that I possess that segment of the skills, but these other people have skills that I do not. And I feel like as a team, yeah. the, the pooled skill set could collaborate in such a way that could actually work. Totally. So totally. it was a total jigsaw puzzle process for me in the same way. What was the question again? <laughs> Okay, the question was, how does the entrepreneur think about scaling and think about the decision-making process in terms of leveraging and taking, you know, borrowing money in terms of raising investment capital and bringing in investors or in terms of bootstrapping and that those different kind of choices, which I suppose present themselves at different levels as well, but how do they think about that process? 
Okay, so every country and culture apparently appears to be a little bit different in how they think about it, which I think is so strange. So debt and equity actually mean something quite specific before you even get into it. Equity means you're giving away your company. And so this for a lot of people, and traditionally before the dot-com, before everybody just wanted to IPO and then release all of their shares onto the market, um, this was usually something that people did not do. You know, During the crisis of 99, the only companies that went public were companies that needed the capital um, let me take that back. The only companies that were allowed to come public because a small company would not come public during that time, there would just be no market for it. But the only really good IPOs that came out or secondary offerings that came out were insurance companies that just needed to recapitalize but had amazing businesses. Those were the major companies that came out. There were obviously others. So, you know, liquor in my body can't remember all the companies that came out. But a huge portion in the 99 crisis were insurance companies that just need to recapitalize. Um, and, and, you know, they were phenomenal businesses and continue to remain phenomenal businesses, but it wasn't like, oh, what joy in giving away my company. I remember when Ralph Lauren went public, um, which happened during my tenure, they only put out the world's smallest float. They put like 13% if, you know, don't Google that, don't trust me on that. Uh, He did not want to give up anything, anything, you know, I mean, the man built the business and, you know, the only reason he was even remotely interested in creating this share structure was for the fact that he might one day potentially in a small fractional way retire and then figure out how to transfer the wealth to his child. Like, you know, this was not the way that people gave parts, you know, it just wasn't common for people to just give parts of an incredibly successful, you know, bu- you know, businesses were children, to many of these entrepreneurs, these old school entrepreneurs in the, um, even as late as 2000. Um, I think if you realize you're giving your company away, that's step one on the decision-making tree. But I feel like there's sort of a romanticism that's been created with shows like Shark Tank and things like that, where someone's going to come and present their idea and the successes that they've had thus far up to this point and say, I'll give you oftentimes this enormous part of my company yeah. for oftentimes not that much capital per yeah. se, right? Uh, but, but, then there's, but then there's also the advisor piece of it. Yeah, right? and the you advisor get, like, piece is it, a real thing. It is a real it's, thing. It, in fact, yeah. it's probably more important than the capital for sure. in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, yeah so, so number one, think it's your baby, right? So anyone that you're giving capital to, you're getting married. Essentially, they're going to be a co-parent in your company. Um, You know, if you give even the smallest fraction of your company away and the other parent is completely absentee. Now, if you you think of the the company as a child, then you would never, ever, ever let someone even have 5% of your child's time if they were going to be an absentee parent. Can you imagine leaving a two-year-old with someone who was like, that's cool. I'm going to lock the child in the house and go down the street and get some cigarettes and liquor. No, absolutely not. You would not allow that to happen. But I think a lot of people do that, um, you know, as, as a mistake is an entrepreneur. They're like so thinking, oh, if I just give this person, they'll come in and do the, no, that is, you know. So, so on the equity side, realize number one, that that's what that is. Even before you answer the question of what should you do, um, on the debt side, you're taking in, um, you know, a liability that you owe. So you got to make sure that you can cover that interest expense. And if you think you can cover that interest expense even faster, pay down that debt and that that's the best use of your capital, cool. When interest rates are low, actually debt financing is a legitimate, smart, 
you know, amazing way to retain ownership of your company and bridge whatever it is that's causing you the capital gap. Really depends on your business, though. Certain types of businesses, particularly distribution businesses that are capital intensive for inventory, you got to try to figure out how you're going to capitalize that inventory because that is the major, major constraint in your growth. But if you have a business where, you know, you have plenty of cash flow, it's all good, whatever, you shouldn't be giving away anything about your company and certainly not for a financial partnership. Sorry, I skipped a step. If you got a financial inventory and you need that capital and you need permanent capital, that's what they always call it, permanent capital for some reason, right? Then maybe you do give a certain fraction of your company away if they can fix that problem for you permanently, right? Because that is the constraint on growth. And then how much you give is really a function of what you think you can't do in the way of financing on your own. Also, it has to do with how you know much you trust that person to actually give you what it is they said they were going to give you and what the nature of the arrangement is. Um, it's always hard because every situation is different. I think the number one thing if you're going to give away any of your company is whether or not you like the people you're going to have to deal with on the other side. I mean, you're married at that point. Right. It's like all marriages. There are good marriages. There are not so good marriages. You know, um, you know I think when you give away your, your company for, for money, which is essentially what you're doing with financing then you got to think like, how much is this guy going to be up in my grill? And am I cool with that? You know? Right. Right. So can you talk a little bit about how you at age 24 built, co-founded and built a $2 million a year business over the period of two years? So the first part that you said was very important, which you selected the right business partners. Oh my gosh. She's amazing. That's she's crucially so important. the best personality and specific to me too. You know, she's my best friend. She's still my best friend to this day. You know, she's so even tempered and she had such a strong vision for, for what she wanted to do. The skills that she used for me were really like personal ambition type thing. My, my grit, all of those types of things. And also, you're going to laugh, my chattiness, strangely enough. <laughs> An asset, indeed. Most definitely. <laughs> you know, and I'm not ubiquitously chatty, but when I do get on a roll, I do get on a roll. <laughs> so it's kind of that. Uh, you know, it's funny. We were in the herbal products business, but, you know, the higher end of that business is called the nutraceuticals business. And she's still to this day, I sold it. I sold my shares back to her and she's still doing a bang up phenomenal job. She has like, I want to say seven, but I may be wrong on that, different patents on various high end nutraceuticals that have shown real efficacy. So when you... F- when you co-founded it with her and the two of you built yeah. that from, from zero to two million in two years. Yeah, it was really crazy. Can you talk a little bit about how you did that? Okay, so when we did it, we both had some capital buffer. So it was our own investment in the company. She and I also had come, both come from finance, so we understood how debt worked really well. We both had huge revolving lines on our credit cards. I mean, not huge. Come on, there's like big and then. But for for what we needed for initial, we probably had a pretty decent credit line between the between all of our cards and the two of us. Um, so that's one of the things that we did in advance was we both made sure that we could increase our credit lines before we both quit our jobs. I quit my job first, and then she quit hers later. Um, we the nature of that business was that we needed to grow our client base quickly. We did a conference, and what I learned from her. Uh, which is amazing, was that she she said, you know, your job, May, at this conference is to be super chatty and just try to network like crazy. And where you feel uncomfortable on the business side, you will bring them to me and I will work it out. 
that was like, didn't she didn't even really need to say that to me. I just knew that that's what had to happen because that was the culture of the, between the two of us. Right. I think I was so aggressive on her request that we had not even, the conference had not even started. The exhibitors were just in line trying to get their pass. And I probably was handing out business cards at that. And the oddest thing was there was this wonderful, wonderful um, guy that came up to me half laughing and was like, are you new at this conference? And I was like, yeah, this is my first conference. I'm super excited. You know, I'm in like cute little like pants. You know, I was like, I, you know, I was 23, I was like 23 or 24. I was 24, I think. I was pretty young, right? Let's call it that. And I'm thinking, he's like, so what are you here for? And so I told him about the, the um, product that we were working on that time. He's like, I've actually never heard of that product. I'm like, it's out of Malaysia. It's amazing. He's like, tell me more about it. And I was like, you know, it's science-based. Um, so... So I said, well, you know, let me just um, finish up checking in, <laughs> you know, and um, I'll bring you over to the booth. My partner, Annie, is really far superior at explaining what this herb is, where it comes from, all the background of it. And then, you know, I know she'd be excited to talk to you about it. So I drag him over. And little did I know that he was the formulator for the fifth largest company in the herbal space. And he just thought we were so like, you know, entrepreneurial like we had so much gumption we were you know we were personable and this is not an industry as well that has too many like younger women in it so he was like you know what and you know we're gonna have these really boring dinners why don't we invite annie and may yeah that'll be fun um so so you know we continued to network and the thing with i think with with women, your upside sometimes in a male-dominated industry is there are no women, and that gets really old at a dinner table for an evening event or whatever it is. The downside is that you have to not play that card in a stupid way, right? You get to come, but you still have to be very professional. And it's interesting because it was something that even Annie and I talked about as recently as New Year's when, when I was hanging out with her um, over over the last a couple months. And she was like, you know, it's it's funny. We were talking about another woman entrepreneur that we think very highly of, but oftentimes she forgets this aspect of being of being an entrepreneur, especially a female entrepreneur, is that, you know, if, if someone talks to you, guys have reasons that guys talk to each other too that we just don't even have access to. And it can be as stupid as we both went to the same football game that week and happened to be in the same part. It doesn't even matter. And I'm not saying that you as a woman might not like football. There's plenty of women that like football, so that might be your way in as well. But it can be these stupid things that are much more guy-dominant. You know, if somebody invites you to dinner because they actually have no women at the dinner and they just kind of want there to be some gender differentiation, just go there. But don't play the stupid card. Like, play your strength, which should be promoting your business, being a strong entrepreneur, meaning business, because that's fun, you know? It's it's just you know there there is such a desire and I'm so digressing from your original question but there's so desire to have women in businesses where there are no females present, uh, you know, if somebody's willing to be awesome on that side and give women a shot, you should also do justice to that shot and really be a strong entrepreneur on the other side and that's what we did and because of that we had um, a lot of opportunities we got you know a shot at bat. And then it was what we did with that shot at bat that allowed us to grow the revenue to 2 million. 
in a very short period of time, and we worked our tail off. Which can you talk a little bit about that? What you mean by that? Like how so you the actually first scaled? Thing, when we first started, we were doing a consumer product, but we immediately understood from this conversation. We, we took his advice. We didn't even try to pretend like he was ignorant. I mean, the guy was very senior in his field. He was a head formulator for um, a big company that's still really well known today. Um, you know, and he was like, you know, I would like to buy your raw ingredients. I'm not interested in the products you developed. Now, some people would go home and just cry. Like, oh, what, you know, I want to own this market. But we were clever enough to realize that he was going to give us a massive shortcut. So we were happy to work with him on formulation. And then subsequently, we tried that conversation out and it worked. So we pivoted very quickly. We didn't give up our formulations because we felt that our formulations gave people a visual idea, a prototype of what was possible for their formulations. And usually they would look at it and they would be like, yeah, we can do that better, you know, and since we can do it so much better than you could, um, you know, we don't feel like you need to stop doing what you're doing. So if that gives you an income stream, that's fine. I mean, even that um, part of the business was what a lot of people would consider fairly successful because in two years it was also generating over six figures as well. Um, it's just that the, the, the other part was generating so much more revenue. Yeah. So then from there, we, we pivoted to the distribution business and then we were open-minded. People would say, well, that, but you know, if you also sold other things, it could, it seems like you're really good at sourcing raw ingredients. Can you source other raw ingredients? And instead of being like, no, that's not what I do. Or no, you know, we, we, you know, posse'd up and we're like, you know what, let's actually investigate what it would mean to do that. Because since we have a new ingredient and we just want to build a relationship and demonstrate that we can execute effectively and how we handle business. Let's use that and then allow them time to do their formulation on this other raw ingredient that has higher margin but is really what we want to do. Um, basically, that's what happened. We were very open to feedback. Um, we, we let no obstacles get in their way. I remember one time, you know, and, and you know we've talked about this. My science background is pretty significant. Luckily, it just happened to work out that way. And, um, you know, there were a few tests that needed to be done. And we hired out like we were supposed to to various organizations. But they were interpreting the tests very strangely, like meaning they ran the test, we got the results, and they actually didn't have someone on staff that really understood how to even talk about the test in a way that was commercial. So I actually had to go in, look at the test, and figure out how to describe it commercially to answer the questions that were important to our clients. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you just don't let small things stop you. You figure it out. You know, Annie and I, um, later over the course, even after two years, were considered experts in our ability to explain what the herbs actually did and how that compared to other herbs that were in that were complementary for a formulation you know just what we knew we had to become experts in our area and we didn't get scared from doing that so one of the themes that i took from what you just described was the continual willingness to be open to pivoting to be open to new ideas to innovating in particular ways when you learned about new opportunities or new potential avenues or new ways that you could augment or expand or that kind of stuff and i wonder you know i think about the statistic i don't know exactly what the number is but it's something like you know 90 percent of small businesses fail before you know 10 years yeah. or seven years or whatever the number is uh it's an enormous super majority of the small businesses that get started end up failing um, what do you think is the key to being a successful business for that duration? This business, obviously, as you said, you sold uh, out she's your portion of it, but she's still running it. And she's been doing it for well over a decade now. Yeah, so yeah, it's a great so what do you think are the keys to 
businesses running for a decade plus versus what makes those 90% fail? You know, I, I, this is always hard. I mean, these are like so personal and why it fails and how it fails. I mean, definitely if you have the wrong staff, if you have just bad staff or real, you know, you really partnered with the wrong people, that'll cut you right out. I mean, that's just a non-starter almost. Bad people will kill you faster than any other attribute in the marketplace. After that, you know, you have an idea or some product or something that you're trying to communicate that someone else wants to purchase. So creating a quick prototype, MVP, whatever they want to call it, that's really important so that you can get the feedback to know how, like maybe you hit it out of the park on the first iteration or maybe somebody doesn't like your packaging or maybe someone thinks that like, okay, I like this part, but not that part. You got to listen to that as an entrepreneur. You can't just be like, I think they're all stupid, you know, um, now, in listening to it, you can't listen to it in the negative, in, the stu- in, in a way that's unconstructive. You know, we knew that the herb was awesome. Like, we thought it had actual value for people, the herbs that we were selling. We understood that the obstacle was that people needed time to do whatever they needed to, and we needed to build kind of an ecology. And I talk about this in actually the book that I'm writing. We needed to build supporters, ecology around it. You know, then you have to look at your cash flow and what what kind of time frame do you have and what's going to actually support that ecology being created. Um, in this case, we listen to our clients and what they needed. Number one, I like what you're doing. It's going to take time for me to build this into my business practice. But what I need in the meantime is someone who can like give me the other herbs that I need for my business, one. And two, do it well, execute well and be client focused. You know, I think even when we didn't execute well on delivery, the fact that we communicated better than almost all our competitors, you know, if the shipment was going to be late, we were so scared that we were not going to get this cash flow and would have to figure out another way to finance that I would call the client well in advance and say, this is what's happened. This is the new expected timing. How does that affect you? What are you thinking? And strangely enough, I was so young at the time, I didn't even appreciate that they were accustomed to that by a lot. So they weren't, what they weren't accustomed to was someone actually telling them so they could then you know, plan their own business needs on the other side. Because of that, we were able to increase um, our business outside of this herb uh, that was our primary business. And then once those revenues started kicking in on the herb that we wanted to focus on, we had a, that's how we got to 2 million. I mean, the growth was pretty, pretty significant. Um, you know, I don't know if that answered your question. Definitely. No, it does. And I want to build on that and ask a more specific question in terms of your productivity techniques, time management techniques, obviously your career from there, uh, and then just moving on up into very high intensity, high demanding environments on you where you had to deliver an enormous amount of things with very high level consequences, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about your time management techniques? Do you have, you know, morning routines? Do you, how do you carve out and structure your time to execute on your priorities and all that sort of stuff? And then, you know, what types of productivity hacks or techniques have you developed that you can maybe share with people? 
Well, first, I never want to minimize um, the stakes at anybody's level of where they're at on entrepreneurship and where they are and, you know, and in the numbers that they're talking about. Because quite frankly, when I was 24, 26, the other side of that, that debt was on my credit card. You know what I mean? And I felt every, every, you know, I had a nice credit rating. I was brought up like a good Chinese girl, which is credit ratings are really important. <laughs> you know, I know that's really strange, but along with teaching math, parents also tend to teach credit rating. It's really strange, but that's what happens. It is what it is. So, um, you know, so the idea that we might not that I might miss a payment or have like way too much credit or be paying this ridiculous interest rate and how we would roll that from card to card to try to like make it work. You know, I mean, I did a lot of the classic things that other entrepreneurs did because as a distribution business, you need a lot of capital. You really actually need a lot of capital to grow your inventory to support the growth that you're doing until you figure out other ways of getting more affordable financing. Totally 100%. And there is nothing unstressful about that. That stress is not less than when you're working with a big, ridiculous portfolio um, of, of assets that um, not that isn't even your money that really can freak you out as well. I mean, they're all... They're all reasonable, real stresses. Now, your question was this time, I think I remember, how do you manage the stress routines? Well, well, okay, so I want you to talk about two things. So one, definitely, how do you manage stress and anxiety in intense environments? The other thing I want you to talk about is time management and productivity hacks for executing on on, on priorities in okay. effective ways. Well, to be fair, so two separate sort I of would things. say that for anyone listening that's complete, t- completely terrible at this, I definitely was terrible at this for a long time. So I would just work myself into the ground, which is wrong. That's the wrong move. I think, you know, I was fortunate for many years, for certain years of that period, and having very dear friends and even my partner, who is my bestie, who would just be like, we're going to miss, we're going to the spa and it's going to be awesome, <laughs> you know, and that's really what we're going to do. And you're going to come with me and I don't care what you think you have to do because that's what we're going to do is we're going to go to the spa and we're going to hang out as friends who care about each other and stuff. Now, she's the best, really, really amazing human being. Anybody that knows her um, probably is like, shout out, Annie. She's the best, <laughs> you know. So number one is you definitely, definitely have to take time out for yourself. Um, now you asked for daily routine. I do actually think it's important to take time out for yourself on a daily basis. Um, I have, uh, even to this day, I take time out for myself, but I think most 24 hours sometimes is the whole time for myself. Cause you know, as a semi-retired nomad, that's kind of just how it works. Um, however, even moving into that, there were certain things, you know, sleep is really important. You know, it doesn't sound like it's a routine, I've watched people completely, completely, um, what's the word, like combust themselves, I don't know, or implode. Um, I've definitely watched people implode off of lack of sleep, you know, going into a complete messy state. You have to sleep. These, you know, I'm in New York. There are people that love to talk about how awesome they are and how little sleep they need. While it may be the case that I do have certain proclivities to not need sleep and have a very strange relationship with sleep, which any of my very dear friends will know and often think is is strange um, and it it is um, a competitive advantage in some ways, I would never brag about not having sleep. That's like saying, you know, 
I can jump out of a plane without a parachute. <laughs> Why would you do that? This is stupid. And I have a magical skill of grabbing onto someone without the parachute. That's so stupid. Jump out of the plane with the damn parachute. What's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like, why would you? Yeah. Okay, good. That's great because there's eight of us and you think you're awesome enough to always grab onto one of us. That's really cool. No. Sleep is by far the most important thing that must be in one's routine. You can go a few days without it, but you must, you know, be aware of how it impacts your performance. And anyone who thinks it doesn't is probably kidding themselves. And I think this becomes particularly um, important for people that have new new children. You know, I've watched employees that have new children, and I will purposely take things off their plate, and sometimes they'll get really upset or what have you. I'm like, look at you. I love you, and you'll always be really successful in my group, but you're a mess right now. I mean, you haven't got any sleep, friend. I'd rather you just go home and get three hours right now because you are, you are a creative, amazing executive, but right now, you're a hot mess, right? You're a hot mess. You know, um, very few people, though, I think have managers that even bother to look at the bags underneath your eyes and realize that that's a decrease in productivity and not some kind of medal that you get for being loyal and dedicated. That's totally messed up, in my opinion. And I hope that cultures change to really appreciate that. But sleep, that's the number one thing for the routine, because you know how I love to give a short answer to a long question. Sorry about that. So during your so so dur- well, I think it's it's significant though, and I think it is important. I think that uh, people really need to really need to understand that because I think you're right. Either out of necessity or out of you know I need to be dedicated and you, yeah. you know take away my sleep and this kind of stuff. So I think that is a, a theme. So I think that's important. But then during your your waking hours, how do you how are you as productive as possible during the hours that you set for yourself to actually do work? So I'm. As you can tell, occasionally I've been known to digress. <laughs> so I really have to watch my time. I mean, like currently I use Amazon Echo to have Alexa tell me when I'm over my time limit. So, you know, that's really amazing. Um, I also try really hard to set my time appropriately. Like if I know that I'm going to want to connect with someone, like it's not just, oh, there's a couple of things they want to do, but also I probably need to take that time to actually connect with that employee or that person because I actually like them as people and I do want to make sure they're actually feeling like someone cares about them, not just the things that they physically do for you on a day-to-day basis. Then I won't schedule that the same way that I would schedule a quick catch-up. For any meeting where you know, where that is not the goal, I always have an agenda, like written out in advance. And it's really funny because I went and I was talking to someone about this the other day about agendas and why they're important. And sometimes people think they're important because it just describes what will be done. But I'll include things in my agenda if I know certain people need time to reflect before they can comment. You know, introverts, extroverts, people are really focused on that. But there's also another letter in that Myers-Briggs that's pretty important. It's the sensors and the intuitive people. And the intuitive people need to process a bit. And especially if their letters combine in a particular way, you are so unfair to have a meeting and then expect everybody to have a shoot from the hip answer, you know? If it's just it's just a terrible way to behave because you lose half your creativity, you lose half your thoughtfulness, you know, and also for anyone that is you you you, you preference shooting from the hip as a thoughtful response in meetings versus doing what you actually want to do, which is get a thoughtful response. 
agendas are key. Agendas keep meetings very tight. And if you also build surrounding it a culture of how awesome we got out of this meeting really fast because everybody's really thoughtful and really did what they were supposed to do in the meeting, then you end up with very tight meetings. My meetings rarely went over 30 minutes and it became this point of funness that we could all get it over 30. And we all knew precisely what on the agenda required extra time to talk about. And we would talk about it very thoughtfully. And then if it came to a point of contention, we would move it to another meeting because it was, it would become unfair for people, you know, who had, so imagine you thought about it. I thought about it. We get in the meeting, we start fighting and passionately arguing our case. Is it possible that what actually needs to happen next is a break for you to actually reflect on what I said as much as you reflected on the thought process of what you just came up with that you thought was all clever, right? So, you know, my job as the leader of the meeting half the time was just to know what, what, what was happening in that regard, cut it off quickly and move it to either a secondary meeting, you know. So the process is, you know, every conversation that you have that's business related and not getting to know you, trying to, you know, be very connected to your employees, every conversation should have a specific purpose. And to the extent that you even know that purpose, and sometimes the purpose is to figure out the purpose and that's fine. But to the extent that you know that purpose and can share that with people in advance in whatever way is their way of communication is, will decrease the time that you spend in meetings. So my meetings, always really short, always approximately the same time each week, always had a format of notification in advance, the meeting, a write-up at the end of what exactly happened. That way, anyone that felt that that's not what happened, that meeting was also encouraged to talk to whoever was the relevant person about it. And then, you know, systematically doing that, um, you know, that's how the day was structured. And how about in like a small business context? I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges that entrepreneurs have is that some people will work really hard and they'll work a lot of hours, but they will not be doing the most impactful things, right? And so how does one, let's say a business owner who's building a business, go about the process of prioritizing their time to the highest and best use of the, and assessing what will have the highest impact on the company that they should prioritize and use their time for. Like, I mean, did you have a process for thinking about that? You obviously scaled your business very effectively, which means you were probably doing the correct things or the most impactful things with your time. But I feel like a lot of people sometimes don't know how to do that. They spend a lot of time doing not the most impactful things. Okay. I do actually try to write down what it is is the most impactful thing. So I do, you know, in the ideal world, I set a time, set aside time at night when I'm really frustrated with either where I've gotten to or really excited about where I've gotten to, to write down and to think and write down what would be the best achievement for the next day. When I do that, I tend to not fail. Boy, I said that in the negative. I tend to accomplish what it is I set out to do. And it could be anything. It could be like, tomorrow, what needs to happen is these taxes need to be filed because I don't feel like paying a penalty on them. Or tomorrow, I need to fill out all these forms so I know what errors actually have to happen so I can delegate this appropriately. So step one, always, if you can, 
write the thing that needs to get done. Now, the second part of your question was, how do you know it needs to get done? Um, this one's tougher. This one really has to do with the degree to which you are honest with the purpose of the company. You know, if you're like, what we need to do is grow to this, right? And you set the goal as, I'm going to just add 100 people tomorrow. And that's not even realistic, then what you probably should have written down was, I need to figure out how to add 100 people tomorrow. And these are the two places I'm going to seek out information on to determine if these are the right ways. I mean, figuring out what the problem is and really clearly defining purpose is a um, developed skill. You know, I've talked to people all the time when they call their business. They're like, I was like, why do you want your business? What do you think about the, is the value of your business to end world hunger? What the hell is that? You know how many people have been trying to end world hunger? That has got to be the broadest definition. Friend, you have not even begun to refine what you, you know, but you can't say that because they're, you know, obviously you don't want to squash a young entrepreneur who's trying to like save the world. That's the most beautiful thing that you could possibly hear. Now, how you get them from there to something specific, which is provide recyclable material, like provide food and recyclable materials is a totally different thing or whatever it might be. Um, but, um, you know, I think that's really it is, you know, if, if you're trying to get impact, it may be because you maybe haven't defined your purpose tightly enough and spend some time there doing that. Okay. And then you were going to talk about the sort of stress management techniques either in... Was going to talk about that? Yes, you oh, were. I was. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, either in... Because I think I, I actually, and to be honest, I, I mean, I think this is a really major issue that both in the entrepreneurial space and I'm sure in a lot of these other high-intensity uh, uh, finance and other environments that manifests itself. But I feel like for entrepreneurs, failures, setbacks you know, high stress events, whether it's financial stress or they have the market goes crazy or they just, you know, whatever it may, I mean, any number of things can happen that can cause a very high level of uh, stress, anxiety, that sort of stuff. And I feel like that can be emotionally debilitating for a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, to some, in some cases, just knock them entirely out of the game, right? I mean, if it, if it happens at a level, but in other cases, at least to just knock out their ability to continue producing at the level they need to do and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, over the years, have you developed or do you have any tips for managing stress, anxiety, setbacks, failures, and being able to just you know, bring yourself mentally and emotionally back into being in a present and productive state to continue doing what you need to do? Am I allowed to answer? No, I do not. <laughs> you are. You are. Kidding. No, you are. I, I mean, I, you know, either, either there your experience is nothing or, or that you, that you can have. do. Yeah. It is all over being an entrepreneur is a sea of tears and frustration. <laughs> you may or may not take that out. I can tell now from the look on your face. I think we're leaving it in. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, okay, so. The things that used to upset you when you first start as an entrepreneur, if you manage to make it, will be almost laughable in later stages of your career. You'll be like, oh, wasn't it funny when we our biggest problem was this? And remember how upset we got? So, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think you ever really truly manage the truly serious things in your business because life just then brings you the next stage of the pain that you don't know how to manage. It really is a sea of tears. Go work for someone. Don't be an entrepreneur. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what I'm but um, no, I think, 
I th- I think you uh, num- the, to the extent that you have enough bandwidth to not define yourself by the thing that you do in your company. You got to kind of balance that because when you become an entrepreneur, it's very much so all encompassing until you get really good at it and you find amazing team that just helps you just execute efficiently and effectively and joyfully, so to speak. Because actually when you have a great team, it can be quite joyful no matter how painful the project, how overwhelming the project is, right? Like let's say you're in the middle of it. I think when you're in the beginning of it, there's almost no amount of advice I can give you because the pain is just so in your face. <laughs> Everything is new and it's there's no way to tell you that it's not going to be new even if you're a you know, a seasonal entrepreneur. So it's really just whatever cushions you've created for yourself in life that'll help you, you know, financial cushions, family cushions, like breadth of knowledge of people that you can turn to very quickly to try to get over it quickly, you know, so to speak. Um, But if you're middle and longer stage, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they define themselves by failure or success in their company. And I do think that you need to have hobbies, for lack of a better way to describe it. Maybe you should get an animal or something, you know, if that's your deal. Like maybe if you don't like animals, you go do a sport, whatever it is, karaoke, you know, I'm Asian. That's what we do. That's why the karaoke bars are late night opened all over Koreatown. You know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's whatever your thing is, get it out. But have other things that are who you are. First of all, those things make you human to your clients, number one. So you will actually be better with your clients for having hobbies and experiences. So if you are only possibly motivated by money, that might be what you should do. I hope that you are not as an entrepreneur, but if that's really the thing, you know, go do that. Um, But they also remind you of who you are and they bring you joy in a different way. And they remind you that, you know, this thing is just something that you tried and created. And if you fail, um, that sucks, but it's just that failure would just be the next stepping stone to you actually getting whatever it is you want right. Um, Yeah, you got to have hobbies, friend. You can't just be like one thing. But the processing of the failure in that framework, I think, is really important, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, particularly if you're a sole entrepreneur, which I can't even imagine, that's really quite difficult. Um, this is your child, right? You know, it probably hurts as much as if someone told you something really terrible about your kid. You know, you, you, I, I don't know how much you can absorb, you know, if someone tells you like your kid's terrible at sports and you love sports, that's a tough one, you know, but if you have more than one kid, you might be like, eh, whatever, this is going to be the kid that travels around a lot and gets us free tickets and becomes an airline pilot or something. Let's ask, yes, you know, whatever, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's like that, you know, so I could imagine that if you have a lot of children, you're probably really good at handling children, but that first one makes you want to cry and, you know, curl up in fetal position yourself. <laughs> sort of thing. Um, I don't know. So, all right, cool. So let's do this. Can we move on to the lightning round questions? A few quick questions okay. for you. You ready? Lightning round. Lightning round Do you have questions. special music for this? Um, we're going to have to edit that in. We'll have oh. like a lightning, maybe we'll have like a lightning crash with yeah. like a thunder sound. I think you a, need to a have a thunderclap. Would uh, yeah. that be sufficient for you? I don't know. I feel like you should have something really exciting though, um, for sure. Imagine a thunderclap okay. with a lightning. <laughs> something there like you that. Go. Right. The lightning round. What is one book that you would recommend to the listeners? Top book. To your audience. Interesting. I don't know. I always say one of my favorite books is Harold and the Purple Crayon. 
Okay. But that's a children's story about a kid that basically has a marker and draws his reality. Okay. I actually think there's a lot to be said. Like, I really love that as a children's story because basically it's a little kid. He can't fall asleep. So he, like, takes out this marker and he starts drawing his reality. And everything that he draws becomes real. Um, and then he draws himself a little bed and goes to sleep at the end. It's very cute. But I think that's true. You know, whatever you want to bring to yourself actually becomes a reality. So if you draw a dragon that's fire breathing and you know, going to kill you, then that's what actually happens as an entrepreneur. If you draw a nice little sunset, then that's what happens, you know? Yeah. And I think children's books are actually really, really important. I think parents these days are looking for substantive children's books of which there is a growing, I think, industry now, um, you know, more and more of that stuff. So I think that's a great type of book to recommend. Also, Matt, that's where you're and my maturity level capped out. Truth, truth. <laughs> We draw, that's where we draw our yeah. inspiration. We try not to go past about age eight. I think that's just too much, too much. Maintain it there. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, what is a favorite either podcast or blog that you read or that podcast that you listen to or some type of information medium that you consume regularly? These are really hard questions. That's My why I was going to prep you for them in advance no, and you refused. But then that's you not wanted fair. them all live. Then we really call them the lightning round at that point if someone's already thought about that and has like a four page. Let me whip out my piece of paper I with this on the like. I know how you roll. I know. <laughs> right. So Podcast. What was the question? Podcast. It's either a podcast that you listen to or a blog that you read or some type of stream of information TED from talks, a person. 100%. Maybe. TED okay. Talks. I, I generally, if, if I have spare time and just need to procrastinate, I will turn it to TED Talks. And sometimes they say some, quite often they say something clever, more times than most. For sure. Cool. Uh, if you could have dinner with any living celebrity or author or public figure that's living. alive today. Yeah. Alive. Yeah. Who you've never met. Okay. Who would you choose and why? Oprah. Oh my gosh. She's so cool, what right? Would you, what would you talk to her about? If you had, let's say you had like a three hour dinner with Oprah, it was just the two of you? Honestly, oh, it has to be the two of us because I actually like to watch her interact with others. Oh. I went to her show when she was still taping it in Chicago and all the little details of, I love observe, observing really successful people, all the nuances of what they do. Mm-hmm. And in that hour, I observed her doing so many really fascinating things. If I had dinner with her, I'd just be so psyched. I would just... I don't even know that I would necessarily say anything. I'd just maybe sit in silence with her until she got really felt really awkward. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know what I'd do. I, like, but definitely Oprah. Would you ask her any particular questions, do you think? You know, I'd probably just try to let her talk. Okay. She's a talk show host. Yeah. She's probably pretty good at that. Yeah. I might start out with something like, what, what are you thinking you want to do now that you've done more or less? What does someone do when they've done everything that, they, right. you, that other people could not even imagine was possible? I might start out with that. And if she like, you know, changes the subject, we'll just go with whatever Oprah wants. <laughs> I think is how we roll. She gets to do what she wants. <laughs> All right. What are your top three favorite travel destinations that you've ever been that you let's just say maybe oh, you'd love going to backwards, go back going forward going backwards you'd love to go back and live in these three places for a month if you could spend more time there you'd recommend that other people do top three that's hard because you know you live in places for a month i'm a drive-by traveler yeah so that's what i'm saying of that's the 51, 51 countries um, and many more cities than that that you've been to okay i love kuala lumpur and i'll tell you other people do not love kuala lumpur you know what I call those people? Haters. That's what I call those people. <laughs> I think it's a great city. It's very diverse. It has a uniqueness to it. And the food is awesome. It's super affordable. And it's urban, but it's not urban in a, in a way that's difficult. Like New York, I love. 
obviously I'm never, that's on my top three because I'm never leaving. Um, so I'm going to go out the easy route, you know, but it is the exact opposite of Kuala Lumpur as far as like the things that I just named in some ways. But in other ways, New York, you know, I, as a test, I tried to be a tourist in New York even after living there for 12 plus years. And I didn't run out of anything to do. I mean, you just won't. Like other cities, you might legitimately run out of stuff to do. That will never happen in New York. You will not run out of people to meet. You will not run out of things to do. You will not run out of anything. New York would be absolutely number two. And then third favorite place to go back and visit. This one's tough because I don't know enough about some places to really put them on the list. You know, I probably should put parts of Italy, Greece, and whatever on the list. But the only one that I actually know enough about to put on the list is Shanghai. Shanghai. Yeah, okay. Shanghai is really, really interesting as a city. Yeah, you haven't been, right? No, it's, That's what you told it's me. the tippy it's like top of my bucket Shanghai, list to go. Shanghai is like, it's really, it's, it's, for a Chinese city, it's diverse, but I wouldn't, but it's diverse in ways that are very different because you still do have the majority of the population being Chinese, but it's a particular type of person that's drawn to it as a great art scene. People are super clever there. And then you've got like a massive population, but the, but, um, you know, what they're doing is very unique there. Oh my God, this then gets really hard because Tokyo is awesome. I would totally go back there. I mean, you can't, three, Matt, seriously? You're the like, one that picked <laughs> the city you live in. But I agree though. I, I, I do agree with New York. Like if, if one were to actually pick a, a, a tippy top three, like I too, my heart is, I mean, New York, New York City is, is insane. Yeah. And there I are two th- types of people. People that like New York and people that don't really matter to me very much. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I am like, a New- a lot of New York haters. You know I, that's true. I am a New York City lover, as you yeah. know. <laughs> I think it's very interesting that you pick KL. Um, as you know, I have lived in Kuala Lumpur for about four yeah, months. Yeah, it doesn't get love there. the way that it should. Uh, it does, but there's very interesting things about Kuala Lumpur that were very surprising to me. For example, the speakeasy culture in Kuala Lumpur. And yeah. I don't know if you spent time. I did not do enough time in the speakeasy. I think I might have done one. It's That's like, all I got. It's like Incredible! Like you can yeah. Google like top speakeasies in Kuala Lumpur, and there will be like competing lists of what are the top ten speakeasies in Kuala Lumpur, where people have different opinions on what are the top ten if you were to narrow it down. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and they're really legit, you know, yeah. elaborate, you know, speakeasies, and then you know, all you're doing is making me want to go back to Kuala Lumpur. It's amazing, <laughs> but it's amazing. It's a cool place. Yeah, it's really it's it has very interesting stuff like that. So I think like a lot of people have you know, don't give it a lot of love. I think because they maybe have a very peripheral initial impression. They're like, oh, like it's not immediately like super enchanting and architecturally like, you know, alluring that just makes me melt like certain, you know, other places might be like really different. They definitely have some really great architecture in KL. They do, but I'm saying like, I think people, uh, you know, I think you have to- It's not Paris if that's what you're trying to say. That's what I'm saying. No, that is what I'm saying. It's not a a Tuscan, you know, Tuscany village in Tuscany or it's not like a whatever, right? But it is- it is an interesting city, which the food is insane. Paris is top ten, by the way, is what I'm saying. <laughs> the food is and almost made top three. <laughs> the food, the food in Kuala Lumpur, I agree, is insane. It's insanely it's good. Amazing. Yeah, in a way that's very different than than the European cities, where the food is also amazing. This is too hard. Why you make three? Like that's terrible. You want five? I want a hundred. A hundred cities. She wants a hundred cities. That's why we're nomads. If we only had three, we wouldn't be nomads. We would be like hanging out in the suburbs somewhere. That's exactly right. Which there's nothing wrong with hanging out in the suburbs. (laughs) Let me be clear as hell at that. (laughs) Suburbs are good too. I also visit them too when I'm traveling, not just the cities, friend. I may be coming to a village near you. (laughs) 
All right, last question. I'm going to sober up soon, so we're going to have to close this off, Last Matt. question <laughs> of the lightning round is what are your top three bucket list places to visit that you've never been that are currently at the top of your list? Most oh. desirable places. Okay, so I don't think of them as bucket list because... You're going to do them in the next I'm... 12 months. Yeah, exactly. what is it the current so, top of your list? Uh, if I was going to say these are really difficult ones to get to... Okay, Egypt for sure, because who doesn't want to go to Egypt? So cool, right? Um, and then where else would I really, really, it's on the top that I have burning desire to go to? I don't know. I mean, there are just so many places I just want to go. Probably ones that I'll just go to because I really want to go. Budapest. I haven't been. Can you, you imagine been to that? Budapest. Yeah. yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, I was in Budapest very briefly a long time ago. I need to go back and spend more time there. Egypt, I've spent a lot of time in. As yeah. you know, I've lived there. For, I've been to Egypt three times, and I've been there probably a total of about 12 months. So I've lived in Cairo pretty extensively. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's a few that I want to go to because they're so hard to get to, and people have told me that if you can get there, they're actually awesome as long as you don't have an incident. Afghanistan, I've heard, is gorgeous, and I have a friend that's going there. So those countries all seem really fascinating to me, but they also are things that my mother is going to find unacceptable. <laughs> Period. Ever. She's not cool. So you're going to so tell her after you get back. What I usually do. You want to hear this? you just went there. This is what I do, and I, I'm going to have to be very sober and figure out whether or not I need you to edit this. This is what I actually do for any country where I think my mom might be concerned. I call her from the airport lounge. I'll be like, Mom, hey, by the way, I'm at the airport. I'm flying out. And I'm going to XYZ country. And some of the ones that she got scared at. She got scared at Turkey because I literally flew there four days after they bombed Hagia Sophia. And the Germans, you know, a few of the Germans passed away because of that. It was really horrible. Um, so I called her four days after that and was like, hey, I'm going to be in Istanbul. Just FYI. She got so upset. She's like, May Ling. And I'm like, hey, mom, do you want this to be our last conversation? <laughs> she was like so upset. She's like, that's really messed up. Why do you do this to me? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, mom, mom, I love you. That's the last thing I want to say to you, no matter what. And, he, and finally, after she calmed down a bit, she was very cool. And I always like check in with her every day, particularly when it's a scary country. But that's that's how I roll on that. She's not a fan of that, so she now like just arbitrarily would check in with me, seeing what's up. See, I got that stuff out of the way very early because, yeah. but well before I was a. You went to some scary place. You went to Syria, friend. I don't know. Well, well, like, well, like, well, well before I was sort of in the digital nomad stuff. I mean, my background, my academic background, as you know, I have a master's degree in international peace and conflict resolution. And so, not just a podcaster. Yeah. So I would, So I used to go, you know, in. Educated. Yeah. So <laughs> when you were building businesses at 24, I was <laughs> rolling hey. around in, into conflict regions and stuff like that. And so. You're and, making you know, a real difference. Yeah, so, I, like, <laughs> like, I, so, I, like, so like, I lived in Ireland for a year, and I went to Trinity College in Dublin and stuff. Wow, and, did you really? Yeah. Cool. And then I... Uh, it's but a really that, good college. Yeah. And then I would go... They accepted but, you? I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm totally joking. Actually, I'm totally joking. Actually. Actually. <laughs> they were begging you to come. No, You're that you amazing. Know, actually, <laughs> if, you, if you knew how I performed in my early, let's say, high school period of my life, yeah. uh, let's just put it this way, as my uncle puts it the way his high school career went 
I graduated in the half of my class that made the top half possible. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Exactly. I, I feel like that's how you should think about it. I yeah. contributed in that yeah. matter. I was working on my social yeah. skills, man, in high school is what yes. I was doing. Yeah, no, you want to have good, strong, soft skills, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was it, you know? And yeah. I would, um, so what I did in high school, I, I was DJing in high school. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, so I started that's off, fun. I was uh, out of love for hip hop, so I became a yeah. hip hop DJ. And then I wow. actually parlayed that into my first business. And I, I started a mobile DJ company. Cool. And I actually started DJing proms at other schools while I was still in high school. Wow. So I was literally DJing senior proms while I was a junior in high school. Yeah. Then when I was a senior in high school, I DJed a lot of the area proms. And then when I went away to college, I would come back in the summer times and I would do the whole prom circuit and then I would do the wedding circuit. Do you still DJ? All in the summers? No. Why not? I have hung it up. Be well, now so I'm on to podcasting, you see. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. But, you do a little um, music at the very beginning. But yeah, so I was, you know, I was doing things like that in the high school, which I tended to prioritize a little bit higher than, let's say, some of my academic obligations, yeah. shall we say, you know? Yeah. So my mother tells a story. I would come home, you know, from high school, and I would drop my stuff, and I would, and I would start heading out. She's like, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the, to the girls' volleyball game. And she's like, oh, cool. She's like, did you finish your homework? I was like, No. I was like, but mom, that's they, before you I was look. like, I was like, but they come to all of our basketball games and no one goes to their games. We have to go to support them. Oh, that was very thoughtful. Yeah. So she's like, how can I argue with that? How it's can true. you argue with that? Right. It's true. So I had my, I feel like I had my priorities straight in high school. Although the universities I applied to didn't all necessarily agree with those priorities. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? When what I do was, they know? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So then, uh, yeah. So then once I got into college, which I was very excited about, my parents thought I might be destined for community college. There's so nothing wrong I, with community actually, college. When I actually made it into it, I know. Well, that's what I was about to tell yeah. them. <laughs> but I actually made it into four-year university and uh, then uh, went to Trinity and then grad school and on like that. So wow. whole trajectory, a lot of re-pivots wow. in, my, in my trajectory as well. So, yeah. uh, you know, one thing after another. And here we are podcasting on the on a boat bo- in yeah. the middle of the Mediterranean. Yeah, how cool is that? It's insane. It's pretty cool. I like to call people from where I'm at and say, hey, the reception might not be good because I'm in the middle of Mediterranean, but like, I did want to just get back to you. <laughs> I like to say stuff like that because it's really, really never appreciated in any way, shape, or form. I am floating through the Mediterranean, drinking wine, but I just wanted to let I just you wanted know. to say that I got your message and I'm thinking about what you asked me and I'll get back to you tomorrow. <laughs> thinking of you. How often do you do that? Do you do that often? Uh, well, it depends on who. It depends <laughs> I select, I have selective autoresponders, shall we say. But speaking of which, we need to get yeah, off we get to dinner. our dinner right. uh, obligations. Cut us off. So how can people find you, connect with you, see what you're up to, get in a space where they can get a copy of the book later on when it comes Don't out. call me. I'll call you. No, I'm kidding. Get I, into your ecosystem. How can people connect with you and find you? It's just www.mailinglie.com. Mailinglie.com. Okay, yeah. so we are going to put that uh, link in the show notes along with all of the other links to cool stuff that we talked about. So check out the show notes and you can go there and connect with May and get an advanced copy of her book. Yeah, thanks innovation. for that. Thank cool. you for being here. This was awesome. <laughs> Anytime, Matt. Anytime that we happen to be on the same boat in the Mediterranean. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be perfect. We'll do it again the next time we're on the same boat in the Mediterranean. (laughs) All right. Let's go get some dinner. Bye, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. 
Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing. Are you following Maverick Investor Group on social media at Invest Maverick? You'll get exclusive content such as behind the scenes footage, travel adventures, and tips on real estate investing and lifestyle design. Follow Maverick Investor Group on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat, all at Invest Maverick. I don't know. We kind of digressed. What was the actual question? <laughs> Can you imagine? I feel like I'm on a beauty pageant. What was the question again? Can you repeat the question? <laughs> Can you tell us about like, world peace? World peace is the answer. I just want world peace. I want us to all be really happy and love each other. You know, like, that's what I think. Are we out of liquor? Is that why we're pausing, Matt? Did you drink all your wine? I don't think I should, honestly, I'm pretty red. I think you're at a good point. I think you're at the right tipsiness level. Um, It's going to start slurring if we continue for That is me officially apologizing. Well, we're going to edit the apology. (laughs) Oh, no. We're going to do an outtake reel. We're going to do an outtake reel. We're going to do drunk blooper outtake reel. This is going to be amazing. You definitely need an outtake reel. This is going to be amazing. We're going to do a blooper reel. (laughs) What was the question? What was the question?